so much for coming tonight to Big Ten. This is our first kickoff event of the 2024 election year. Not only is tonight our first event, but it is also it also marks our first co-produced event with Katie Cork Media. Each month, Katie will spotlight will co-host a spotlight speaker webinar with Big Ten. We are thrilled and honored to work with Katie and her team in 2024. At Big Tent USA, we put democracy above partisanship through education, civic engagement, and activism. And in 2024, we are focusing like a laser beam on democracy. We are doing this because we care about our country, the future of our children and our grandchildren, and about protecting women across this country. It gives me so much pleasure to introduce our three esteemed guests tonight. Sarah Longwell is a Republican strategist whose work focuses on defending American democracy from the authoritarian threat posed by Donald Trump. She has conducted hundreds of focus groups and leads campaigns aimed at reaching voters with messages anchored around bedrock American values. And if you don't watch the Hallmark Channel, there was an ad that aired at Christmas time, and it's the, there's a link in the chat, which you must see. She founded Defending Democracy Together in 2018 with Bill Kristol and is a publisher of one of the other amazing newsletters, The Bulwark, and host of one of my must-listen-to podcasts, The Focus Group. James Carville, the raging Cajun, is a political <laughs> consultant, author, media personality, and democratic strategist who successfully managed the first presidential campaign of Bill Clinton. Carville also managed the campaigns of Robert P. Casey, Senator Frank Lutenberg, Lutenberg sorry, Zell Miller, and Harris Wooford. Carville is the host of the popular weekly podcast, Politics War Room, with Al Hunt, and he hosted Crossfire and regularly appears on many other television talk shows. Katie Corrick is an award-winning journalist and number one New York Times bestselling author of her memoir, Going There. She is the co-founder of Stand Up to Cancer and has raised over $700 million for cancer research. Quirk was the first woman to solo anchor a network evening newscast, serving as anchor and managing editor of the CBS Evening News from 2006 to 2011, following 15 years as anchor of NBC Today Show. In 2017, she founded Katie Quirk Media, which has developed media projects, including a daily newsletter, The Wake Up Call, a podcast, Next Question, and a digital video series and several documentaries. You can find it all at katiecorick.com. Thank you so much for coming to Big Ten tonight, Sarah, James, and Katie, please take it away. Okay, Kitty, thanks so much. James, what are you doing? I can't see you now. I, I, I'm back on. I'm actually, the lighting is so bad, even I noticed it. So I'm are you trying- putting your ring light on? I'm trying something, okay? I don't know if it'll work. All right. Well, while fine. you Go do ahead. that, don't worry. Let's, uh, let's act like it doesn't exist. There well, we go. Does oh, that help oh, any? That, that's so much better. Thank oh, you. I'm going to get a job in Hollywood. If I'm being so <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, I, I just want to welcome everyone who's joining us. Uh, and, and Kitty, thank you so much. And Sarah and James, it's wonderful to see you both. We have so much to cover. So- let me dig, you know, just dig in right now. I'm going to start with you, James. Clearly, uh, as the Biden administration issued a statement last night, Donald Trump is going to be the Republican candidate for president of the United States. 
turn your light back on. It was actually good. Was it blinding? I'm trying. I'm trying. I, I hit okay, the don't worry about it. On. Okay, right. I, I'm just curious. I'm just going to get, I mean, I, I think people knew it was going to happen, but the morning after, James, and then Sarah, I'm going to ask you, what is your reaction to this this turn of events? Well, first of all, uh, thank you, Katie, and uh, Kitty, and uh, my other partners in crime, Sue Mandel and Susan Lee. Leesman, I think, are in the audience, so I just want uh, to give you a shout out. Look, the the main thing that I'm going, there is nothing normal about this. And the more that people go out and act like, well, you had people with for Romney or McCain, and it was this, it was that. This is totally abnormal. And what you saw last night was, if you didn't know it before, it just confirmed that the whole thing is a freak show. And this man is a threat to everything. And if the press is going to cover him and say, well, you got to admit that people have a point or he was right about some things, that's idiotic. You know, and then the, the press is sitting there in a Ford Des Moines hotel with Jason Miller having drinks and writing everything he said. Oh, why, why don't you be in the Munich with Hermann Goring in 1935 and talk about his great stories. Uh, he was a clever character. I mean, I think the threat to our country that's posed by this is real. I think we should not treat this as a normal campaign, as normal people with a difference of opinion, that this is pretty good versus evil. That's the way I look at this race. Sarah, what about you? So I think for a long time now, as I've listened to voters in focus groups, one thing that was really clear to me was that they had not kind of come to terms with the fact that this was very likely to be a Biden and Trump rematch. They did not realize these were going to be the two candidates. And I think last night kind of it, we're starting to turn the corner. And I, I, I think there is no math. There is no path uh, for Nikki Haley. There might be enough money that she continues on. Uh, to her home state of South Carolina. Uh, she cannot win her home state of South Carolina. Um, and even if she could, I mean, the theory around Nikki was always, hey, look, New Hampshire has a ton of undeclared voters, which means that people who consider themselves independents, who don't affiliate with either party, can go pull a Republican ballot and vote in the Republican primary. And that allowed the electorate last night to look very different than an average Republican electorate. And if you break them apart, Trump won over 70% of the self-identified Republican voters. Nikki Haley did very well with independents and even people who identify as Democrats. And when I've done focus groups uh, of people who were going to turn out to pull a Republican ballot, a lot of them were MSNBC watching Democrats who were turning out to vote against Trump. That was her best shot. She needed to win New Hampshire to have any kind of momentum to go into South Carolina and have just a prayer, and it was already a huge Hail Mary or a Haley Mary, if you will. <laughs> and so that's over now. And I think that as people come to terms with what it means to have Trump be the GOP nominee, to have Marco Rubio and Ron DeSantis and everybody else endorse him, despite the fact that in the last, after the last election, he refused to engage in the peaceful transfer of power and then try to coup tried to overturn a legitimate election. That is astounding. It is it is unlike anything we've ever seen. And yet, not only did Trump is, is Trump going to be the nominee, he won New Hampshire and Iowa, both 
that's not been done. It's not been done. I, it's like since 19... since 1976 by a Republican, I think. That's right. It, it's been forever. And so this is a this is something um, deeply frightening to have a political party affirmatively choose somebody who not only didn't engage in the peaceful transfer of power, but is under 91 indictments uh, and to say, no, that's the guy we want. Can I, I, I'd love to explore, and then I'm going to get it to some sort of campaign questions, but, you know, I have been racking my brain or trying to really assess why people are supporting Donald Trump. And I think it's obviously a confluence of factors, but I would love to get your perspective before we talk about the campaign. James, why do you think he is doing so well? and did so well in Iowa and New Hampshire as predict, I guess he's beating Nikki Haley if she continues, if she in South Carolina, her home state by 30 points endorsed by all the, you know, the, the governor and Tim Scott, et cetera. Take me into the minds and then Sarah, you can do this well too, of the Trump voter. What is it that is attracting them to Donald J. Trump? I think that they view him as someone who's not a typical politician. He doesn't talk like politicians. He aggravates all the people that aggravate us. You see these people in the media and you see them on TV and you see them there and Trump just drives them crazy and we like that. And a large part of it is they feel like Trump sees them. That Of course, he his policy is totally... Not, not to get into that, but I think when they see it in him is somebody that takes on people that they don't like, and he doesn't act like everybody else does. He's kind of different, and they see what they, they, they want in him, but, but he's a character of the counterculture, I guess you would say. Back at just hating people in power, hating people that had things that they didn't have, and he takes them out. I think that's a large part of his appeal. They think he sees them, but do they think he serves them? I think there's a big difference between those two things. I mean, do they believe his policies, in fact, help them and improve their lives? They think that. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, if you go and I, I, I watch and they go to these and they talk to me, oh, yeah, well, gas was cheap when he was there. And they have, of course, they have selective recall. But the thing, he's a theological character. You cannot treat Trump as a political character. When they look at him and he's being attacked, well, every, all through history that we've been, people have come to deliver us and they've been attacked. And Trump is a guy that sees us. And it, it, it's all rooted in biblical narrative and theology. I always tell young people, they're going to college, what should I study? I want to get in politics. Study comparative government and biblical history. That, that Because all, all of this comes out of that. And, and Sarah can tell you, in focus groups, they say he's delivered us. Uh, of course, King David was flawed. King Cyrus was flawed. They have a whole theological construct around him. And Sarah, why don't you tell us about, because obviously you're talking directly to these folks, and I'm sure you have formed in your head kind of a, a, a whole panoply of reasons for this fealty 
to, to Donald Trump, despite all the things we've talked about in terms of, you know, the insurrection and, you know, a, a myriad of things. So, so tell us about the mind of the Trump voter. Yeah. So first of all, I want to underscore something James said, uh, because it's really important, which is the not a regular politician. So I hear this phrase over and over again. I like Trump because he was a businessman. He wasn't a regular politician. And part of what they mean by that is that he made politics accessible and interesting to them. So for a lot of people who think politics is boring and politicians lie to them, it's just kind of this slimy thing, it's funny. Voters can kind of hold this weird conflicting truth in their heads. So something I hear people say all the time is, well, I know Trump lies, but I feel like he always, I feel like he tells the truth. And what they mean is, is like, they know he's boasting and they know he's shading things or even outright lying about crowd size or, or this or that, but they feel like he's given them the inside dope. Like when he says things to them, like, I know how to make uh, your taxes go down because I've been figuring out how to get out of paying my taxes for forever. They love that. They're not mad that he skirted around the government for his taxes. They want to do that too. They want him to show them how he gets away with it. Um, the other thing that I think was really important to Trump's success and his connection to voters that has been underappreciated by politicians in both parties, but I, I think is really a problem for Democrats, is how much Americans care about what's happening on immigration. Um, like for better or worse, however anybody else feels about immigration, the build the wall was a clarion call not to actually build a wall. They didn't care if Mexico paid for it and they didn't care if a wall actually got built. What they cared about was that somebody said immigration is a big deal and I care about working class voters and I care about the idea that, you know, we have a border and that that matters. And that really resonated with people and caused a deep connection. The other thing I'll say is like at this point, there's just a lot of sunk costs in Trump, right? So these people have voted for him a bunch of times. They have fought over their Thanksgiving tables. They have been alienated by their friends or fought with their friends. And now like Trump's their guy come hell or high water because they are in deep and they're not giving up. Um, they're just, yeah, that's it. There are a lot of sunk costs. James, since Sarah brought up immigration, let me ask you about that. That's a very potent political issue for the Republicans. I think it was the second motivating factor for voters in Iowa and New Hampshire. It's resonating all over the country, even here in New York City. And I'm curious uh, about your assessment of what Joe, the Biden administration has done or hasn't done vis-a-vis -vis immigration. And if they are being unfairly blamed or if they should be held accountable for for the number of people who are coming across the country or across the border rather. Well, first of all, I think Sarah's gonna agree with me. One thing people do not like is disorder. If you ask people their opinion toward immigrants, it would actually be fairly favorable. If you ask their opinion toward the Southern border, it would be very unfavorable because they see disorder. And they see some sense of disorder in the Middle East, they see disorder in the world, but they see more crime disorder than the statistics would bear. But there is a sense to see that the House can't do anything. Even that some of that wears off on Biden a little bit because it looks like no one, they, they have the sense that no one is in charge. I, I, I could defend the Biden board policies. I, I think some of this is a result of 3.5% employment, but, I, you're losing at that point. And that's, and Trump 
have select has made them selectively recall that there was order when he was present, that people knew their place, if you will. And that that's what's eating and causing a lot of the political problems, I think, that 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 President Biden's having is that people just have a sense that the, the world around them is, I don't say collapsing is a strong word, but it's is not predictable, is not acting in ways that they expected to act. And that feeds into his, we'll get into it later, why this is so hideous and obnoxious, but I, I do think that's driving some voting behavior in public opinion right now. It's a, a lack of a sense of order and the border being a, a, a very good illustration of that. But James, just to follow up, what can be done in the short term that will help neutralize this issue? Obviously, the House, there's a certain segment of House Republicans who don't want to pass right. an immigration law because they don't want uh, Joe Biden to get any credit for it. And they want something that is even more uh, sort of uh, more to the right in terms of the proposed policy. So how how do you neutralize this issue? So it's not hurting Biden so much among yeah, voters. Yeah, right. That's a, that's a way to put it. It's not hurting him so much. You're not going to neutralize it. You're never going to get this thing to 50-50 by election day. But what can help is you got Chris Murphy, by the way, he's an all-world talent, is negotiating this with Senator Langford from Oklahoma, who's actually, I, I know him a little bit. He's actually pretty, not a bad guy at all. He's, you know, he's got Oklahoma politics to deal with, which is his own thing. And they don't want it. All right, because they correctly feel that this is a good issue. So what I think the Democrats should do, the White House should do is we're sitting there in good faith. We're trying to address this. You know, the con people understand this, that Congress appropriates. The president has to have the no. And you, you go down to interview these border agents and they say, we're overwhelmed. We just said that the number of people coming in and the number of people we have to process this is, is in severe imbalance. Well, I would go to the extent when I was asked that, I would go and attack it and say, we're trying to do this. We need the resources. We can do better. We propose legislation. You know, we worked. It's not a great answer. It's not something you want to have the whole campaign centered around, but you don't want to just sit there and take it. And then you, you, you push the other things you've done. But it's never going to be a winning issue for us. But you, you, the word you use is neutralize and make it better. And I agree with that. Steve Ratner told me last night that that, in fact, uh, the Biden administration had several executive orders that would bolster the number of, you know, P, uh, Border Patrol agents, et cetera. But they haven't been funded. Right. I mean, why don't they say that? Is that a is that true? But we, we're on the same page. We're singing from the same hymnal because <clears throat> under the Constitution, the president can't fund anything. That is the one power that the Congress has. And they sent 60 of them down to the border. But yes, they, and, and of course, Ratner's right about a lot more things than, than he's wrong about. And he's absolutely correct about that. And that has to be part of the answer. And, and if you notice, the people that are most anti-immigration are the places that immigrants are not gonna go anyway. <laughs> Don't worry. <laughs> but but it, 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 it is a, it is, I think it's a real problem. I don't, I don't think it's a made up problem. And Sarah, sorry, sorry, James, sorry. but Sarah, do you feel like voters are receptive and persuadable in terms of if they saw actual movement on this issue or are they so entrenched and, 
And do they feel so strongly that he's been, that President Biden has not done enough, has been a disaster. They listen to Fox News. They listen to these talking points over and over again. Are they even open to any near-term solutions that will, as James said, you know, hurt Biden less on this issue? Yeah, well, look, there's, there's two audiences. There is the Fox News watching and sort of Fox News cinematic universe deep in the Steve Bannon war room, you know, Trump base voter. Forget about them. You're not going to convince them of anything about the border. But we're going to go into a general election where you're dealing with a lot of college-educated suburban voters who are kind of in an, uh, a pox on both their houses mood. And as Trump seeps more into the public's consciousness, as, he, as you realize this guy's coming back and he's going to run again, a lot of those voters don't like Trump. They voted for Biden last time. They are part of the anti-Biden coalition, but they're frustrated about the economy and the border. The economy's getting better, right? Now, what could Biden do about the border? Well, one thing he could do, and this has been, I think Biden has actually been quite a good president, and I think he's been a terrible communicator about what a good president he's been. They have a lousy surrogate game in terms of having lots of people out there who are carrying uh, the message of this administration. But Biden himself should go out there and say, hey, I put a deal on the table, a good deal with Republicans to fund border security and fund Ukraine. And I, I want them to sign it. Tell me what you want. I want to negotiate in good faith. A a somebody in a in, in, or or you know give that job to some other pit bull that you can to start negotiating and be loud about it. Box them in. Be aggressive. Go on offense. You know I come out of Republican messaging world and they understand how to put a knife in their teeth and go on offense and box the other side in. And this is an issue that I agree with James. You can't turn it into a winning issue, but you can mitigate it by being much more aggressive and saying, "Look, I'm trying to I'm trying to do something." Republicans are the ones standing in the way. But it is weird to me the way that Democrats kind of do this. Like, yes, Republicans are complete obstructionists. We can't do anything about it, but without really trying to box them in on it, without really going on offense. And I think if they did more of that, they'd be in a better position. Well, that brings me to the larger question of of messaging, James. I mean. First of all, uh, has Mike Donilon or any members of the Biden team reached out to you? What would you advise them? Because I know that you have said Biden's vulnerabilities as a candidate. So, you know, I I mean, I agree with Sarah. Why Why aren't they out there more? Why aren't they making their case? Why aren't they really giving it to the Republicans? What's going on? So, so first of all, I've noticed that the lighting on my face, and I'm reminded of President Lincoln, a, a woman once said to call President Lincoln two-faced, and he said, lady, do you think if I had another face, I wouldn't use it? <laughs> which, is one, which is one of my favorite. I, that guy's humor was unbelievable. Uh, look, there's so much that President Biden can do. I, I, Mitch Landrieu is the campaign chairman. He's a dear friend of mine. Uh, uh, in my advice, and I'll give it right here, and the same I, I gave to the mayor, but I give it to anybody. He needs to do infrastructure events. He needs to go, do show action, show motion. It's an actual huge accomplishment that he can point to. It's bipartisan. He can come in and recognize. He's not going to be able to do long days. He's not going to be able to do ad lib, ad hoc press conferences, and just do this and point to that things are happening. America is building things. There are 40,000 projects. People don't know that. And 
I, if, if that, and I would do uh, those kinds of events. I would make them very simple. You know, I would talk about how we grow the phosphate. We're going to work for America. You know, this, you know, you can see this right now. This is an overpass. This is a computer chip. Ask Steve Radden what we've done. Magnificent job we've done catching up just on the manufacture of computer chips. It's, just, it's only breathtaking. But we don't know it. Does anybody know that Trump has been adjudicated by a jury of his peers of being a rapist? That's true. So why didn't journalism say Donald J. Trump, an adjudicated rapist and Republican nominee, said today? Because he was in, in Judge Kaplan's court uh, against Ms. Carroll. He said by, by common parlance of the word rape, that's what the jury found he did. But we're not, we, we got to pick a few things and drive them home and drive them home relentlessly. Why doesn't he have more surrogates, James, that are out there, you know, singing his praises, talking about their accomplishments, explaining right. sort and of things in simple terms? Are, right. Mitch Landrew is one of the most articulate people I've ever been around. I love Mitch Landrew. I never see oh. him. So so is, is Jennifer Granholm, our former chairman of Susan Susan Guy's group. All right, she's unbelievable. She's uh, the G Governor Gina, the, the Commerce Secretary. I, I think they underuse surrogates horribly. Uh, I, I have my own ideas of why this might be the case or why it might not be the case. But I, I, I think you're, I, I agree 100% with your observation, but this thing is so dangerous and it's such a perilous case. I, I'm, I'm like Rumsfeld. I'm just going to war with the army I got. And that's it. I, I can't look back and fix everything. Well, have I can't remember if you answered this specifically. Have you talked to the campaign, James? Well, I talked to I talked to Bail Andrew, and uh, I mean my views are uh, you know they're not very happy with me because I, I thought that we should consider having a, a, another candidate. So I'm probably not the the number one most favored guy in the White House. I can live with that. I can deal with that, and. Uh, you know, it's it, it, it's just hard to execute strategy when you're kind of limited as to what you can do. And, and I'm not I'm I'm not complaining about the campaign. I, I people can take or not take my ideas, but I think they ought to drive this infrastructure thing very simply, very repetitively. I think they need to drive that home to show that somebody is doing something, something's happening. American can actually do something. I know Cheryl has in some focus groups. It looks like we can't do anything anymore. You know, we actually are doing something and we're doing something great. And I think that needs to be driven home. Sarah, is that enough to move the needle just to go to infrastructure? I mean, what advice, what, you know, from what you're hearing from voters, how would you translate that and advise the Biden reelection campaign? Yeah. So here's here's the main thing. And I've been saying this a lot, which is that voters do not know what the Biden administration has done for them. They do not know about the infrastructure packages. So I agree with James. But I, let me just put a finer point on the surrogate thing, because this is my hobby horse. I'm out of, if you have an older gentleman like Joe Biden, who is not going to be your energetic communicator, what you need is a host of other people who come out and do it for him. Now, the Democratic Party is in a terrific position right now. Because it has a whole bunch of swing state 
governors, a new bench of stars, Josh Shapiro, Gretchen Whitmer, Warnock, Wes Moore. You got Jared Polis out in Colorado. You got a bunch of people, not just, and not just governors. You got, you got, you got great uh, congresswomen that were all elected in 2018 who were he helicopter pilots and CIA analysts. You got Abigail Spanberger, Alyssa Slotkin is running for Senate. And I don't know what's going on. I don't know if they are running from Biden's record or they're worried about his low poll numbers. So they don't want to engage with him. Maybe, maybe that's it. But I got to tell you, this is an all hands on deck thing. When, when Donald Trump and Donald Trump had some pretty low poll numbers, but Republicans know how to circle the wagons. And when Donald Trump, when the economy was doing well under Donald Trump, and he's running it hot, he's spending a lot of money, he's borrowing a lot of money. What did Trump do? He ran around and said, best economy for black people, best economy for women. Hey, buddy, how's your 401k? And every other Republican said the same thing. And Democrats have to figure out how to have it, make their own echo chamber. And, you know, when people blame the media, give the media something to write about deploy all the surrogates so they're out there changing the narrative. If you don't like the debate, if you don't like the conversation, change the conversation. He's got the biggest bully pulpit in existence. They have the ability to set the tone, and I think they live on defense, and I don't understand why. Can I make a point here? Absolutely. Out of talent that's contained in the Democratic Party right now is the highest by far I've ever seen in any political party any totally. time in my lifetime, All right? And, and I would throw in that Sarah that had a, a very, very good list. I would throw Andy Brashear in there. Andy totally. Brashear, I mean, Shapiro. I, I mean, when I, I, and I use this word advisedly, these people have potential Clinton-esque political talent. I think, and in the cabinet, the same thing is true. I, if you ask me to extrapolate and yes, knowing everything I know about politics, I think there's some extent they're scared if people see all saw all these talented people out there. It was a gee, why, why don't we get one of these people to do this thing? All right. That, do you, you think know, that's that's preventing I, them from uh, deploying I, them? I, I'm giving you my speculation based on 40 years of experience because it's the only reason I could think that you wouldn't use these people everywhere and it's almost impossible to get them booked on anything to to to, to go, uh, go around the country to to do this and they have solid i mean foundational achievements that they can appoint they can point to and again i i cannot emphasize enough just the amount of, of bitch talent that there is in the party today. Now, I was so optimist, and Sarah, Bill Crystal, and I, we, we the, Sarah thinks we have our heads in the clouds, and you know, we were dreaming of other things that didn't happen. And I'm an old man; I'm gonna be 80 this year, but I'm, I'm a dreamer, okay? But I, the realism, the realism that this is where we are, and you know, the Santa Marine Corps wishing one hand and spitting the other. They don't say spit, but Katie, your daddy will know the word I'm thinking about right here. <laughs> See what one fills up the fastest, all right? I'm done wishing. <laughs> I want to ask you both about Kamala Harris. I had an opportunity to interview her on Friday, and um, she is, I think, being deployed as a surrogate because she does better among young voters who Joe Biden won by 20 points. Now he's equal to Donald Trump. His support among Black and Latino voters has eroded. She does better in those groups as well. Uh, but she does elicit very strong feelings. And uh, she just seems to have not quite gotten her footing, although I think she's really uh, 
you know, focusing on reproductive rights. She's touring the country talking about that. And that's obviously a powerful issue for Democrats. Does she help or hurt the ticket? And what, how should she be used to kind of change the narrative? Sarah, why don't you start? Yeah, look, um, I think that Kamala Harris has uh, the political version of the yips. Right. So uh, it's like a baseball term where suddenly you can't figure out how to like throw the ball, like just you get too nervous and she's she's up in her head. Right. And so when she performs uh, in these high sort of high stakes interviews, things like that, she struggles. It gets a little word salady. You're not sure where she's going. But if you put her in a place where she is comfortable. Um, like if you ever watch her where she's talking to like a historically black college students, things like that, man, she's great. She's great. She's really good. And so turn your liabilities into assets, deploy her with the people to where she is comfortable, where they love her. Young people love her. They want to see her. They think Joe Biden's old and out of touch. So let her do that. But I will say one of their big problems, um, is it does not seem like Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are like a unified team. And again, stakes are very high. They should love each other. Joe Biden needs to help her, help build her back up, needs to make her look like she is an integral part of the team. Because when you are an 82-year-old man, you need to make sure that people think the person who's next in line can take over the presidency. You cannot hide her. They cannot keep her underdeployed. She has to be able to be visible in some way. So put her in places where she can succeed and act like you have confidence in her. They have to, by the way, he's eight, he's 81, Sarah, but he's going to be 82 when he, when, when he, if he's reelected. Okay. Good point. So, okay. James hit it. Uh, you will understand this. Women are judged differently. I have never heard anybody in a focus group say a male politician is screechy. <laughs> right. They are just, it die, and understand. But what I would say to, to, to but, but do something that surprises me. Going to Howard and giving a speech on voting rights, or going to, you know, to a liberal group and talking about reproductive rights, that's great. Go to a community college and welding students and have a, a picture with you in a welding hood with some 19-year-old kids learning how to weld. All right, go to shake hands with a, a, a shift of sanitation workers or, or hospital workers that are going to work at six o'clock in the morning. The thing that she never does is surprise me. And she's skilled enough, she's got the stamina to do these kind of events and they're the kind of events that frankly, President Biden can't do. But they use her so conventionally and she's the, the reproductive rights person and she's the person that's going to shore up the, the black. The, the Democrats' problems with, with the black vote are horrific. They are horrific. I can't tell you how bad they are. But that's not. They gotta. They gotta learn to do things differently, where people will stand up and take notice. So she just. She's just going to fall in the backdrop, giving speeches to university students about reproductive rights. And also, she. Some basic communications things, Sarah, I think she tends to uh, revert to talking points all the time. And so she ends up saying the same thing over and over again, almost the exact same way. And I think it unfortunately makes her seem less authentic because she isn't talking just like we're talking now. It feels like in her head, 
she's ticking down a laundry list. And I think you're right. I think she's nervous about maybe saying something or doing something that will come back to bite her somehow. But it, as a result, she just, it, she doesn't seem like she can talk from the heart. Yeah. And I guess this is what I mean about sort of like, and let's just take Biden, for example, too. Right. So I saw somebody in the comments say like, Sarah, get off the age thing. Okay. Let me tell you something. Voters know Joe Biden's old. It's the number one concern, not from Republican voters, from Democratic voters. Okay. Not going to get away from that. So Joe Biden, and one of the things people say all the time is they're like, when he gives a speech, I sit there so nervous. I just don't want him to mess up or fall over. I'm just, I'm so scared for him. They're not being critical. They're just being, they're saying how they feel about him. So what do you do with Joe Biden? Don't have him give speeches. That is not where he shines. Put him on shop floors and let him put his arms around people and say funny colloquialisms to them. And for Kamala Harris, don't have her give speeches. Don't send her to the border. Send her to places where she's comfortable um, with audiences where she does well. And like, they're just going to have to figure out how to deploy these guys so that they are able to shine where they are, but it's why they need more surrogates. Like the, like, I think people get really focused on, but Joe Biden and Kamala have to do all of the communicating. And that's just not true. And I think that this is not your best communications team. Let them do what they can be successful at, but find other people who are great at the communication side and deploy them. What about independent voters? Um, you know, I was surprised that they're, those numbers have increased. I thought that people had become more deeply entrenched in either side, but how important will independent voters be in this next election, James? Well, so I'm, I'm interested to see what Sarah has to say. Truly independent voters, they might be on the rise. There are much fewer of them than people think. Now, I think they're probably more today than they are before, but the, the way that we ask the question, about 7%. Like a genuine, people will say that, you know, you can ask a Pope, you can say, are you a Republican, a Democrat, or independent? I'll get 28% saying they're independents. If you don't give them a choice and you tease them out, you're going to get a much lower number. So it, 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 it's one of these words that can mean different things to different people. But the common myth, I think it's mythology, I think it was true before, is that everybody is at loggerhead, so locked into their own camps, there's very few people that make a difference. They might, but they make more of a difference. By the way, I think that Biden's number among Democrats in this election are going to be historically low, and Trump's number among Republicans are going to be historically low. Now, they can be historically low and be very high. I mean, we've, I've seen elections 30, 93, 94 percent of each candidate does that in their party. I don't think that's going to happen in this cycle, but I, I, I'm really more curious to see what Sarah says because she spends a, a lot more time and a lot more current on this data than I am. So in terms of swing voters, that what's interesting this time is that the there are lots of people that are persuadable, but it's not that they're, you've got basically two incumbents running against each other. So they're not persuadable in that they don't know these two. They're persuadable in the sense that they hate both of them. Right. They are you could call them double haters, double, double doubters, a pox on both their houses, whatever you want to call these people. I hear from them all the time. And they're like, I don't want to vote for either of these guys. And just like when it comes to give them fewer choices, we do this kind of all the time. in The focus groups are like, all right. You know, you got to make a choice. Do it. 
And people are kind of like, oh, fine, Biden. Uh, and it's one of the things that we see. It's one of the reasons I'm so nervous about a third party, because when push comes to shove, and this is where I think things are going to turn around for Biden, is that when you give them the contrast of Trump, people don't want to vote for Trump or candidates like him. The kind of people that I talk to in my work, they're right-leaning independents, they're soft GOP voters, uh, they live in Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, Arizona, and they don't like Biden. They're not Democrats, but they hate Trump. They hate what he's done to the Republican Party, and they don't want to vote for extremists. It's why they didn't vote for Doug Mastriano. It's why they didn't vote for Kerry Lake. It's why they didn't vote for a whole host of uh, more extreme candidates on the right and went ahead and voted for Democrats. Even though Republican high out turnout was higher in 2022, uh, Democrats still won in key swing states because Republicans voted for Democrats. And so uh, I think that can happen again. And I think it'll be critical because let me, you are not building a pro Joe Biden coalition. You are building an anti Trump coalition. And that's why the third party stuff is so frightening because anything that fractures an anti Trump coalition hurts Biden. In fact, a Monmouth University poll in January found 21% of voters would support Robert Kennedy Jr. in a hypothetical three-way matchup against Trump and Biden. James, you've also been very vocal about the threat of a third-party candidate. How concerned, how worried are you about this? Well, let me go outside and throw up and then come back and answer your question. <laughs> okay, that'll give you an idea. Uh, I want to go to Sarah's point. If you would have looked at the exit poll, the number of Republicans, Democrats voted in 2022, you would have thought the Republicans were going to have a pretty good year, right? It was just a, a House special, but I think it's instructive. It, a state House special in Florida, in East Orlando, and I'm friendly with the Democratic chair in Florida. And they know how many Republicans and how many Democrats vote, and they knew the early vote. When they opened the boxes, they thought they'd lost. All right. The Republicans spent spent a million and a half dollars. Republican turnout was by more than a little bit higher than Democrats had voted. And they won. Now, this is a low turnout, special state house election. But it's consistent with what we saw in 2022. That actually the most important voters in 2022 that prevented a Republican romp were actually, I, I don't know where to swing, independent, loosely aligned everybody moderate republicans yeah yeah but we didn't we didn't win it on turnout that that's you always hear that well i'll tell you what i'm out here sitting in north philadelphia and it's all about turnout coming in here you know and here well i'm out here in westmoreland county it's heavily it's no it, it's like the return that the independent swing voter the the, the people that sarah spends her time talking to are the exact people that are going to probably decide this election. Weakly aligned people, and most of them are going to be Republicans, because even weak Democrats can't stand Trump. I mean, you, now, whether they come out and vote, that's a whole other question. Well, uh, you, you know, you say you, you, that that election wasn't won because of turnout, but turnout is a real concern. You know, a lot of young voters and the way the uh, Israel-Gaza and oh. the Hamas attacks have kind of splintered the Democratic Party. What impact do you see that having on Democratic voters, particularly young Democratic voters, James? So black share should be 12. 
All right, if, if, if everything goes the way it is, it's, it's 12. Now, remember, it has to add up to 100 on election day. So if black share ends up at 10, non-black share has to end up two, two points high, has to end up at 90. That's a lot. If under 30 share, which Democrats won, I think 62, about 60, got 62% in 2020, that's supposed to be 17. If that clocks in at 15, guess what? The over 30 share, which is gonna be less favorable Democrats, has to go up two points. So the net, and people don't understand this, the net is more significant than you think it is when you real, it's never 47 and a half to 47 and a half on election day. All right, it's always adds up to 100. And that's what's particularly disturbing to me it is not at the end of the day will we do of, of, of the blacks that vote will do fine probably do will better young but but it, the share is really critical because as you grow up and by age it, it's it's a pretty straight continuum you know more the older you are the more likely you are to be Republican Biden is doing a little better with older voters I, I have to give him credit for that I think we're we're probably outperforming over 65. A, a little bit, but the, the, in Louisiana, my state is 33% black, at least 20, conservatively 20% of the whites are Democrats, probably more. We got 26%. That's impossible. How could you get 26% where the base Louisiana, we're not going to win anything. The base number is 42 just for showing up. And we got 26. That's, that's significant. Sarah, what are you hearing from young voters? Yeah, so uh, one of the things that I has made me less bleak, I know like Democrats are extraordinarily freaked out about young voters in terms of the rift in the Democratic Party around Israel. And I think that there's real reason to worry. I mean, one of the th reasons really is like, you need those young people to be your foot soldiers for door knocking and they're a big engine of turnout and um, organization. And so if they're feeling angry and unwilling, that can impact how the democratic sort of operation works. But I will say when I talk to young voters, they're not excited about Biden, but they are excited about their local races and they're fired up about abortion. Uh, and they're fired up about some of the, th and when Trump Trump is a turnout machine on his own. I, I am interested in the psychology of what it means to do this again and whether people are so exhausted and whether or not Trump still has the potency uh, and generates the same kind of fear that he did before. But I, I got to say, it rings a little hollow when you hear Michigan voters um, of Middle Eastern descent, let's say, who are very frustrated with Biden on Israel. Is Trump... Your preferred, is Trump better? Like, and this is where I think when Trump comes in and he says, boy, I can't wait to deport all the Muslims in this country or not let any more Muslims in. I mean, I, I just think that people will remember, oh yeah, this guy's way, way worse. And that Bibi can't wait and Putin can't wait for Trump to be the nominee. Uh, and so anyway, I think I think two things. I think one, obviously Trump could be wor will be worse and that Voters will remember that as he gets more in their faces. 
Um, and that too, there's an opportunity for a reverse coattails effect where young people who aren't that excited about Biden turn out because they're excited about their local elections, which I heard hear a ton of in focus groups, uh, or, or they're moved by some of these cultural issues like abortion, and that that helps Biden at the top of the ticket. We're hearing a lot of people ask in the chat, and sorry, I've tried to incorporate a lot of the submitted questions from people who are on this Zoom uh, within my questions, but we've got a lot of people concerned about Project 2025, which is, of course, the plan to reshape the executive branch of the federal government um, and to, I mean, it's, you know, it's sort of in the works now from everything I've read, they're starting to cultivate people and, and all that who will basically kind of ignore the constitution is what I gather is project 2025. Um, they're asking, how do we message the threat around this campaign? Can you talk about how real this is and how that can be communicated because I also hear a lot of people saying, you know, saving democracy is just not going to get people to the polls. People in the middle of the country don't wake up and say, gee, we, we got to save democracy today. So how do you kind of balance both these bread and butter issues with the larger existential threat that a, Trump, a second Trump term poses? So first of all, just want to make a something to be a little optimistic. We have not lost an election since Kansas. Okay, that's a fact. I mean, maybe we have was a plus 20 district that we lost by 12, but literally the Democrats have been on an electoral tear since the, the, the Kansas referendum. It's proud to say I was the only National Democrat to go out there and campaign with it, but it was, it was, it was a lot of fun. It was always fun when you win. You understand this. Rob Reiner has a new movie coming out called God and Country. And it's about this movement called Christian nationalism. You have no idea of how toxic this is. And, you know, it's a perfectly, I'm a Christian. I'm a nationalist. I've had the flag. I put it out in front of the place. I'll wear flag lapel. This is an insidious, and they are just waiting there. Inherit and all of these people, they're ready to fund to put all their people in government. Understand that. In their view, is that the Constitution was handed by Jesus to the founding fathers. I'm, I'm not making this up. All right. In that the First Amendment only applies to Christians. So if, if Baptists are Presbyterians, they have the right to free speech. If you're Muslim, Jewish, atheists, whatever else, that's how nutty these people are. That's how anti-American they are. And when I tell you that they all over this and watch Rob's movie, I, I don't want to be like some old crank, you know, telling people out there, oh, that danger's out there. I can tell you this right now. This is a real and present danger. And they're never going to tell you who they are. They enormously well-funded. I mean, when I'm, I'm talking about not $100 million, I'm talking about billions. Watch this movie, inform yourself, and be very, very aware of what's going on. This is not an old man screaming on a street corner at you. This is somebody saying, please take this shit seriously. It's very real. So, Sarah, okay, so... 
watch the movie, know this is happening, but then what, how can, you know, the, the world is so fragmented. Somebody mentioned, I think in a question they submitted that, you know, the country is just not very unified on anything. Everyone's in their echo chambers and everyone's in their own social media bubbles. How can people sound the alarm about this, but also uh, have that message coincide with things that actually affect their day-to-day -day life? That's I mean, right. how, how, do we, how do we get this point across is the basic question. Yeah, so I think that trying to talk to people about Schedule F which is the plan to sort of get rid of all the civil servants and replace them with Trump loyalists, not a super winning issue. doesn't impact people's day-to-day -day lives um, and is very inside baseball in Washington, D.C. It is dangerous, though. So I had a piece in the New York Times on Friday, and my team and I had gone and gathered all of the statements from Trump's cabinet officials. Uh, and there were 17 cabinet officials who have spoken. Out. It's unprecedented. This many people worked for Donald Trump and have raised alarms about the threat that Donald Trump poses. And so my goal with the piece was to do two things. One was to aggregate all of the things that were said and show how unprecedented and widespread it was, but two, to treat it as a call to action because you need credible messengers who help people understand the level of threat that Donald Trump poses. And trying to explain Schedule F to them isn't going to work. But being Jim Mattis and saying, it is my job to stay above the fray. I don't like to talk about politics, but I sent people to die in wars to defend democracy. I've worn a uniform to defend democracy. And I have to stand up now and say that Donald Trump is a threat to our country to such a degree that I do not think you should vote for him. And I think we are going to need former Trump officials, people who saw him up close to explain the significance of the threat. Um, obviously, you know, with the work that I'm going to do is to have Republican voters, Trump voters specifically, talking about why they won't vote for him again. Most of them, the reasons that they give about why they won't vote for him again are January 6th, are his refusal not to engage in the peaceful transition of power, the fact that he's a chaos agent and scary, um, and then some on abortion. Um, but all of these sort of center-right voices, these credible messengers explaining why Trump is so dangerous is going to be needed in this election because the finer points of Schedule F are not going to move voters. Do you think they'll do it? I mean, it would be a very powerful political campaign ad if you had John Kelly, Rex Tillerson, you know, General Mattis, all these people who were in that New York Times article, you know, saying for 10 seconds why Trump presents a clear and danger, clear and present danger to democracy. James, do you think they would do that? Do you think the DNC could gather these people? A, I think they would do it. B, I don't think the DNC is probably the right vehicle to do it, but I would be open to anything. Well, and, I, you know, I'm not. I'm just saying. Well, I, I know. I, I, I didn't mean. I, I, but yeah, yes. I, I, General Kelly yesterday confirmed what we all knew. He told Jeffrey Goldberg that Trump said to people who died in in the military that people served in the military were all suckers, which is kind of unique, being that the, the commander in chief. Yeah, but, that's kind of a that's kind of a variation on the John McCain. Right, right. But the answer is: Do I think that General Mattis, General Kelly, uh, I think General Milley, when when he retires, would be more than I, th I think we're not going. Well, I think we're going to wind up with with there could be so many flag officers lined up to warn people, and it's a question of of how they do it, 
who presents it, how it's being presented. I would love to see them, you know, all show up at, at, at different places around the country. But I think that these, I, I think there are from comes an E four, so I hardly hang out with with with, with generals. But to the extent I know some of these, these these guys, they are really, really concerned, really, really organized, and I, I think you're going to hear from them. I, I really do. I, I'm very optimistic that th this will happen. We're almost out of time, so I just want to close by asking something that I think a lot of my friends ask that I wonder, and and that is, what can we do collectively? in the short term and the long term. I mean, I think people are at a loss. How can they how can they get involved and how can they move the needle? And then we'll all hand it off to Kitty. James? Well, first of all, it's all short term. Like, okay, I'm old, but if we, if we don't get 2024 right, there is no long term, okay? So let, let's just let, let, let get that out. Everything that we do, has to be focused. Uh, not if you want to go to James Carville YouTube, Trump's health records. I have several ideas of what people can do, particularly young people. There are things that you can do. There are ways that people can mobilize. There are ways that people can con contribute their time. Uh, I, I have very definitive ideas about this. I'll continue to post this. Uh, you know, I've got a half a million views already and people, uh, you know, my idea is we're going to be commandos. We're going to go in and the one thing that Trump and his voters don't like is when he's mocked or made fun of or he becomes a, a, a comedy, all right? Then that that will, that that you'll eat at him. We, we, we don't need a lot. We don't need a, we don't need a, remember, we're not going to massively turn these people around, but there's some people that are loosely attached to Trump that don't like Biden, that we got, we, we got to get them off of that. And I have some ideas about it. Some of them are pretty crude, but that's me. But I, I don't, I don't so think. So you're saying when they go, when they, says, when they go low, when they go the high, low you, I go, you go low. lower. I slopped the pig. My pig won the parish contest in a 4-H club, and we were loading it up to go to the state pan Shreveport. It broke a leg, and we ate it. <laughs> but I had to go out, and let me tell you, slopping a pig. So I don't mind getting in a pigsty. You, you, you can't get any lower than I'm getting ready to get. But I'll just say, you cannot, you cannot roll up your sleeves when you're wringing your hands. So stop worrying start fighting for joe biden he's the nominee go out and tell people that's what's what, what's happening thank you so much james and katie this was incredible we had so many amazing comments there's so much to discuss and so much to think about um and we will be doing all of that and we just appreciate your partnership and working with both of you and um james we hope you'll come back to big tent katie we'll see you next month thanks for having us everyone thanks for thank watching you. thank you katie and good james, to see you darling. great to see you all right.